Good morning. So I have a dear friend, and I was remembering when I first met her, she had been uh, coming to this church I was just talking about in New York City I was pastoring. She had gone to a number of meetings. She had been there, and they, uh, her and her husband were joining the church at that time. And she said to me, took me aside, said, you know, Sam, you're the most laid-back pastor I've ever met. You're the most laid-back pastor I have ever met. And I, I thought that was funny, you know, um, because I'm not laid-back. Just ask my wife, you know, just uh, ask the people who get to know me. This is a dear friend. She's still a dear friend of mine, actually. Uh, she goes to this church. Uh, her name is Kristen Pesnell. And this is what she said. This was her impression of me and the church from getting involved in it. And I thought this was funny because right about the same time, right about the same time back then, uh, there was a list that came out. And the list was published. It was called Emergent Churches of New York City. And it was a guide that was put out. And if you were an emergent church, you would be on this list of churches. Now, some of you might not be familiar with that term. What is emergent? An emergent church was a church that followed the teachings of uh, these guys like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell. And it was a church that was supposed to not be overly concerned with doctrine. They didn't like get involved and like have to talk about things like doctrines like heaven and hell. They avoided, you know, controversial things like uh, gender and things like that. And uh, if, if they, were, they were also churches that were, that were market savvy. So they knew how to do marketing. They were also, you know, not, not, not too into tradition. They were ready to jettison things that were not commensurate with current sensibilities in the culture, like liturgy, things like that. And so this, this was this list of emergent churches for young people coming to Manhattan. They wanted a church like this. They could look at this list. And I was shocked because my church was on that list. We were on this list of emergent churches. And it, it was actually kind of, it caused some problems because people would come in expecting this kind of groovy Christianity, groovy Christian experience. And uh, they would come in and uh, sometimes even join the church. And when they got into the church and joined the church, been in the church for a while, they might preach on something and say, you know, Jesus says this. Um, and woe to us if we do it. He says he forbids us from doing something like this, and woe to us if we do it. Say something like that, or in my counseling, I bring things up, talk about what the Bible says, because we actually did care about doctrine, and we were very much about what people were doing in their lives as far as we knew. Uh, we, we, we were exhorting one another to live as becomes a follower of Christ. This is the way that, that we were as a church, and so people would get mad. They would get angry. Then they would come to me and they say, well, why are you talking about this? I remember one guy, he said to me, you know, your preaching is too specific. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you know, you should not like go into all these applications of the scriptures. And I said, well, I just find pastorally that people need help it's not just explaining what the pastor says. You actually, people actually need a further step of helping them apply it in their lives. That's what I find just pastorally. He said, no, no, no. You should be more general. Just talk about principles like the guy up the street. That's what you should do. Leave the application to the people themselves. And this was, this, this was not something I was able to do. He eventually, actually, he and his wife eventually did leave the church. But the point is, friends, I'm not a laid-back person. The Village Church was not an emergent church, but why did people think it was? Why did people come into it and have the impression and feeling like 
this is really laid back. Like this church is, is an emergent church or, you know, Sam is laid back. Why did they have that impression? The reason why is because we were deadly serious about the passage we're about to read. Please stand with me as we hear this reading from Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, 1 to 19. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, James. All right, so the first challenge of this, past, of this passage um, is probably that, m- that many of you feel like uh, this doesn't really have much to do with you. I mean, many of you are, uh, might read this and say, you know, this might have to do with some specific situation, but it doesn't really have a lot to do with my life as a Christian believer. It doesn't have to do, I don't come across these, this kind of issue much. And what, what I'm going to do, try to do this morning is convince you of just how much of your life Romans 14 addresses. That, that this, this passage impinges on your very walk with Christ um, weekly, if not daily. So much of your life actually has to do with this passage. And it's the reason why Paul brings it up, gives this extended discussion, 
not only in the letter to the Romans, where we know he has this leisure to be writing this extremely long letter, and he's being able to do this, say what he wants to the Roman church, even though he's never been there, but also in the letter to the Corinthians, he actually brings up this same issue, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, and uh, says this is important. Why does Paul bring this up when he's at the end of his career church planting? After all of these years, even though he's never been there, he brings this up to the Romans and says, this is something we need to talk about. This is the way you need to think. Because, friends, he's addressing how Jews and Gentiles are actually going to share a church together. Remember, the letter to the Romans is about the just one and the justifier of all who trust. Right? And the all who trust here is what he's talking about. Jews and Gentiles, he knows that they're both there in the Roman church. And so he is going to tell them how to actually live together in a church, how to share a church together. People of diverse backgrounds, diverse views, coming together and living together. And the, and the key to doing it is a close reading. The key to understanding what he's saying is, is a close reading where we realize that Paul is addressing not, two, not one problem, but two problems. He has two audiences. He has two people he's addressing. He has two dynamics of the spirit he wants to talk about. And there are two problems that he needs to address. And he has found in his experience they need to be addressed at the same time. The two problems are legalism and license. Legalism and license. And by license, I don't mean that card that sits in your wallet. Uh, license is one of those old words. It means crossing the line. It means in your actions, going beyond what you should go. Going into sinful places because you're too free with your actions. That's license or licentiousness. Paul is addressing both of these, legalism and license. Okay, let's see how he does that. First of all, let's recognize that there are two parties that he's addressing, right? And that's easy. We can pick that up pretty easily from the passage, right? Who are the two parties that he's addressing? The what and the what? Shout it out. I'm not hearing it. The weak and the strong, right? You have the strong brother and the weak brother, Like right? We could see that in verse 2 when it says about, you know, not being bothered, you just look at verse 2. You read it. One person believes he may eat anything. Which is that? Which one is that? The strong. Good. But the second half of the verse, he's talking to someone else. While the weak person eats only vegetables. That's the weak. Same thing in verse 3. Who is the first half of the verse talking to? Let, the one, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Who's he talking to? The strong. Good. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Who's he talking to? The weak, right? And this goes on throughout the passage. You realize it makes some of the things that might be confusing make sense. If you realize he's talking once to one and another time to others. Sometimes talk to both of them. Okay, but this, this, is, this is important for us to recognize because Paul has something to say to both of them. Verse verse. Um, Verse 14, same thing, clean and deciding what's clean or unclean. First part of verse 14, who's the subject? Again, the strong. Second part of verse 14, who's the subject? Again, the weak. Okay, so these two audiences. Now, here's the key, friends. And this might, this might, feel, might seem a little different to you. But here's what I would suggest to you that Paul is trying to get across to us. The strong is not better 
than the weak. The strong brother is not better than the weak brother. Now you say, what are you talking about? It's always better to be strong, right? You want to be strong, that's better than being weak. Well, actually, you know, not in the way that Paul often speaks. The apostle says at one point, uh, he says, God chose the weak to shame the strong. He says at another point, you know, I became weak uh, in order to reach the weak. Wasn't something that, you know, was less to do. In fact, he says, I'm content with weaknesses in myself. And even I'm glad, he's glad sometimes to be weak. In fact, he even boasts in things that show his weaknesses. So the weak and strong isn't quite what we might think of when Paul uses the terms. And he uses it in different contexts and mean different things. But when he's talking about the conscience here, um, it's better to think of this as uh, of the weak brother as someone who is tender in conscience. Okay, someone who is more delicate, more sensitive in their conscience. Okay, not necessarily bad if they have that limitation. Okay, and the temptation here, I'm sorry, not necessarily bad if they have that tendency. But the temptation here, as he says in verse 3, is the strong has a temptation, the strong has a temptation to disdain the weak, to look down on the weak, uh, the weak brother and say, you know, that's lesser Christianity. Say, so you are all hung up on this, uh, these different rules that you follow. Okay? Because the strong is able to do something without being bothered by it in his conscience. Okay, that would be the definition of the strong. The strong is able to do something without being bothered by it in his conscience. But the weak also has a temptation there in verse 3. The weak is tempted to look at the strong and say, you're, you're being licentious, you're in sin. You're crossing lines you shouldn't cut. You're not caring about what God cares about. Okay, so weak are those who need, feel like they need a rule for something. So they're more sensitive in conscience, but they have a temptation too, and that's to look at the strong and judge them. Okay, and that same twofold languages goes in verse 10, past judgment, the weak passing judgment, the strong despising uh, the other brother. Verse 13, you know, one of them is saying you're in the wrong. The other one is looking at that, the, the first one and saying your Christianity is so much lower. They're disdaining them, they're despising them. Okay? But they're not one better than the other. This is what helps us, I think, to understand what Paul is saying here. Because sometimes when I'm weak, then am I strong? So what he's saying especially comes into focus in verse 17. There are two dynamics that are always operating in the people of God. This is what he wants wants us to see. There's two things that the Holy Spirit is always working in the saints of God. And it sounds like three things there, but I would put joy and peace together. Joy and peace are on one side. Righteousness is on the other. We need to realize the Holy Spirit is always doing those two things in a church. He is always driving people toward holiness. And he is always driving people to freedom of conscience. He's doing these things at the same time in a church. He's driving people toward holiness, that, that 
you can actually come into the image of Christ. You can be like Christ. And at the same time, he's driving people to be free from condemnation, to realize that Christ has justified them, so they are free. And those two things are always there. There's both the righteousness, verse 17, and the joy and peace. That's what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is about, Paul says, right? He says verse 17. You want to know what the kingdom of heaven is about? It's about these things, about righteousness and joy and peace. Okay, so that's the principles of, of what we're, we're getting in the passage. I know some of you are starting to fall asleep. You're like, oh, this is so abstract. What is it? You know, I don't know what this has. I still don't know what this has to do with my life. So let's go to Paul's examples. Okay? Let's look at his examples. Example number one, verse two. Not eating meat. Okay? The weak, he says, eat only vegetables. Now, I know it's a great temptation at this point, a great temptation to read vegetarianism into this passage. Vegetarianism, a vegan diet or a carniv carnivore diet. I know very tempting, okay? Because that's the discussion you that's the discussion in your life, right? People should eat meat, people shouldn't eat meat. Should we do it? Should we not? There's a, there's a word for doing that when, when you do that. It's called isogesis, okay? Isogesis means taking your situation and reading it back into the text. That's a very important word. In fact, we should all know that word. In fact, I want you to say that word with me. How about repeat after me at the count of three? One, two, three. Isogesis. Okay, good. Isogesis. Okay, not something you want to do. We don't want to do eisegesis. Instead, what we want to do is exegesis. What is exegesis? Exegesis is, first of all, recognizing the situation of them in the text, the situation of the audience, situation of the author, the original words and the original language of the text. First, making sure we understand that. And then once we understand that, then carefully with respect to historical contingencies and the covenants that it might have passed through to us, applying it to possible situations in our lives. Okay, that's exegesis. That's what we try to do here. So first, we want to look at their situation. They didn't care about vegetarianism. They didn't care about whether or not you were abstaining from meat. What they cared about was actually getting meat. Meat was special. You know, we get up in the morning and we could have a hamburger, but they, they did not get meat all the time. It was difficult, actually, to get meat. It was a special occasion. If you're going to get meat, you had to go to the market. If you were going to buy meat in the market, you were almost certainly buying meat that had been previously sacrificed to idols. And you can tell this, especially if you read, I say I, I advise you to always read 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 with Romans 15, Romans 14 and 15. Okay, because Paul goes into the same discussion there. Some people say, oh, it's a different, different situation. No, friends, if you're talking about an urban center in the Roman Empire and a Christian church, this is the difficulty. This is the problem. You had, you had meat, and you went to the marketplace. You buy it. Before it got to the marketplace, it was sacrificed in a pagan temple. Might have been great meat. Great meat. But if you were buying it, you were buying something that had been sacrificed um, to an idol. And there were certain Christians, you can certainly imagine, who said, I don't have anything to do with idols. When I came into Christ, he tore down the idols in my life. I am not going to touch something that was dedicated to an idol. No way I abstain. You also had other Christians who were saying, 
You know, an idol is nothing. It's poof. You know, it's just nothing. Idols don't really exist. There's only one God. So don't be so superstitious about it. I don't care. God wants me to be able to eat. I'm entertaining guests tonight, you know. You should have meat. Now, that's a little harder, isn't it? Because you see the temptation that Paul is talking about. Temptation of the one brother is to look and to say, you know, you don't care about what, what God cares about. This, is, this has been sacrificed to demons. And if you buy this, you're supporting the industry. The other one saying, you know, I have, it doesn't matter where something has been, you know, it's what God is going to use it for now in my life. So I'm going to buy it. That's the temptation. Temptation to disdain the one, temptation to judge the other. You see it now, right? So we can say in our situation, we're more like maybe looking at the clothes that you're wearing. And one Christian has scruples about that and says, you know, I've, I've, I'm not going to buy cheap clothing. Even though it's cheaper, it's made in Malaysia in a sweatshop. So I'm not going to buy those kinds of clothing. Maybe some of you have thought about that. Maybe some of you, it's not even on your radar. If other people say, you know, it comes from different places, but, you know, I know that God needs it. I need it for God's purposes now. I'm going to buy it. Or maybe whether you should buy something at Target. How about that? A little more relevant. Okay. One person says, I'm not going to buy something from Target. It's not supporting Christian values. In fact, it's denigrating Christian values. Other brother says, you know, a Target is right next to my house. It's the, I need something that only Target has. You know, I don't you know, care what the corporation thinks. I'm going to buy the product. First Christian says, you, but if you do that, you're supporting the industry, right? You're doing something that denigrates um, the gospel because uh, this company is you're kind of feeding into the company. Other brother says, you know, you're being, you're being superstitious, you're being legalistic. Now, you might be a little bit better positioned to understand this passage. Not exactly an easy issue. Example number two, verses five through six, calendar days. Okay? Like the Sabbath. The Sabbath. What should we be doing on the Sabbath? Now, this is a difficult question. Even today, it was difficult back then. Right? as what he's talking about, verses 5 through 6. Some people honor the day. Some people, you know, whatever. We're not in that covenant anymore. Now, if, if you've uh, been listening to my preaching for a while, if you sit under my preaching for a while, you probably you come to realize that actually I make a, make a big deal about the Sabbath principle. Is that I think it's important. I think uh, it's part of the Ten Commandments, part of the moral law. It's not something that goes away. And Sabbath stays as a principle that's important at the same time. We are no longer in the Mosaic Covenant. So what does that mean for celebrating the Sabbath today? Is it something to do? Is it something we should do? How do we do it? And if you think that's not a difficult issue, you've just never addressed it in your life. You've never tried it. You've never tried to understand. You've never tried to say, what is it that we need to do here? Because it's tough. It's a hard issue. Christians argue about it. You know how I know? My wife and I have argued about it for our whole marriage. We're, we, from our time we were in marriage, we, we've been arguing about what is it, is it, should we eat on, uh, at a restaurant on Sunday, or are we going to help people, you know, violate the Sabbath there, or do they take one, another one day in seven where they can do, you know, where they can have their Sabbath, and back and forth, and this and that, and um, it's a difficult issue. 
Okay, temptations are the same there, aren't they? Temptation for those who are free, who feel the freedom to look at those who are abstaining and say they're legalists. And people who are abstaining tend to see to look at those who are free and say, you're not really caring about what God cares about. You're licentious. Paul says instead, and what, this is why I said, one is not better than the other. Verse 19, instead we should be thinking about what makes for peace. So weak, don't judge the strong. Strong, don't discourage the weak. Go for mutual upbuilding, because there are these two dynamics that are operating in the, con- in the congregation. So I want to give you some, some modern examples. I think, you're, I think you're getting this. I think you're tracking with me. Let me give you some examples from my life. So you see how this principle, these principles operate. And I just, want, I just want you to feel how much of life this covers. So you begin to respect this passage and realize how important it is for your life in Christ. And I'm going to give you maybe some examples where, one, I'm the, the strong brother, and other examples where I'm a weak brother. Now, you say, well, Sam, are you the strong brother or the weak brother? Which is it? Depends on the issue. It depends on the issue, okay? So let's take this one. Daily quiet time. The Daily quiet time. Okay, now that's the stuff of a Christian life, right? You, you should definitely have a daily quiet time. Okay, somebody a disciple there smiling because we talked about it. You know, you should definitely have a daily quiet time. Now here's what I want to tell you. I confess on this issue, I am the weaker brother. I'm the weak brother. Why? Because I need the rule. I absolutely am pricked in my conscience. I, when I get up in the morning, I have to spend some time. It's a substantial amount of time. I have to pray. And I need it. I need to have that rule to operate. And I'm the weaker brother. And I just confess that to you. Okay? Because this is something I know that I need to do. Now you say, well, isn't it in the Bible? Well, not exactly. Now you could go back and build a case. I could go back and try to build a case from it. Go back and say, you know, it does say pray without ceasing. It does say, you know, give us a day our daily bread. You know, you can make a good case for it. This is a good application of those scriptures. But it's not there as a command for us. And I can imagine that there are people, maybe some of you here, maybe some of you here, who, when you need to pray, you know it and you pray. You, you, when you get a sense that, okay, I actually need to pray, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you pray. And maybe it's every day, maybe it's not, but you pray when you need to. And you don't have this rule of like, it has to be every day, okay? Now, you're the strong brother. I'm the weak brother. Same temptations are there as in verse two, okay? Temptation for me to look at you and say, you're not really living the Christian life. You're licentious, okay? Temptation for you to look at me and say, oh, it's so legalistic. It's daily quiet time. Like, what is that? Let me give you another example. Movies that you watch. Okay, movies that we might watch. Okay, now here, I'm the strong brother, okay? I watch a lot of movies, a lot of different kinds of movies. 
Because you know what? I know what uh, leads me into sin. I know what doesn't. And I could watch a lot of movies. They don't, they, don't, they don't give me trouble. You know, there are some movies that do. Some movies have so much uh, flesh. I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want those thoughts in my bedroom. You know? But I can take a lot, of, a lot of different movies and enjoy them. You know, some of them maybe you would not want, want to watch. You say, I can't watch. I don't want to watch. Okay, so in this case... On this issue, I'm the strong brother. And same kind of things operate. And Paul, actually, if you read this uh, passage closely, has very practical advice for the strong and for the weak. He especially has this advice in verse 22 for the strong, where he says, you know, there are some times when you need to keep your faith private between you and God. You see that verse 22? So, like, sometimes I watch one of these movies and I talk to my wife, and I'm like, this is so good. This thing that's, uh, you know, they're talking about this principle and it shows this spiritual principle there. It's really cool how this movie does it. And, and uh, Mary Kay says, you know, that's really good, Sam. Just do me a favor. Don't mention it from the pulpit. <laughs> so because some people are not going to have that same kind of reaction to that movie. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, what is that? That's verse 22. Verse 22, you know, sometimes you need to keep that faith private among yourself, right? That's where I'm the strong brother. Okay, let me give you another example. Celebrating Halloween. Celebrating Halloween. Okay, you're, you're nodding. Okay, so what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show you this impacts your life all the time. Romans 14 impacts your life all the time. Okay, when we come to celebrating Halloween, I'm the weak brother again. I'm the weak brother. Why? Because I know witches, actually, and this is their high holy day. And I have experienced intense evil on October 31st. I have. So I, I go by the rule. You know, my conscience is, you know, I'm not touching this. No, not my family, not me. But I imagine, in fact, I'm sure in this congregation, there are other people who are like, you know what? This is a chance to bless the kids. I love having all this candy, and they're so cute. They're little costumes. They dress up as, you know, a lion or little David and Goliath. And it's so much fun. I love making the costumes, you know. And Same temptation is there, right? Temptation to look at the one and say you're licentious. Don't you realize how evil this is? Temptation to look at the other and say, you're so legalistic. So, that's the way it goes. Bless your kids. Stay away from evil. <laughs> What's going on there? What Paul says is the way that a church should be is verse 18. Okay? You look at verse 18. It says, this is how a church should work. We should be considering one another acceptable. We should be showing approval of one another. Right? Not, it's not like he, he's saying this is what should be. It's easy to read that and say, well, this doesn't seem like the way that it is. He's saying this is the way it should be. You're acceptable to God. You're, you're acceptable and approved by the people, the man in your church. Okay. Now, I know when I say that, <clears throat> I can just feel the objections. I uh, don't have time to address all of those objections. I'll just take one of them, probably most important. Some of you are sitting there saying, you know, the way that you're talking, Sam, 
the way that you're putting this out, it, it seems kind of loosey-goosey. Like you're, you know, leaving these decisions up to people. They're going to sin. Like you, you tell people these things, you're giving them license to sin. And you know what? I might be, actually. But Paul says this is essential in a church to think this way. You need to think this way or else you will become a church that is either licentious or legalistic. You have to think this way. And does this mean the way that I'm talking that there's no time, there's no place to say this is sin? Of course not. There are times to say, okay, this is sin. There's a time to proclaim from the pulpit, don't do this. Well, you say, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference? You go back to the book. Go back to the book. You ask, you talk to one another. You say, what does the Bible actually say? And that's how we function as a church. You go back and you say, what does the Bible really teach? What what does the Bible really tell us to do? What does the Bible really tell us not to do? And you talk to one another. And you know what's going to happen when you do it? Sometimes you flip. On a particular issue, you go from strong to weak, you go weak, weak to strong. I can tell you an example where I, I did a flip. It was early in my ministerial career. And I had a couple that were coming to me, and I was marrying different people. I had a couple that were coming to me to get married. And I said, okay, here's what you do. Here's what you need to do when you get married. And, and you have a wedding. We need to do this. Make sure we do this. Make sure we do this. And I had a woman who looked at me and said, I don't want to do that. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm the minister. I'm going to tell you uh, that what we need to do. This is how you get married. This is what you want to do. This is how we do it. This is important to do. She said, I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I maintained my composure. <laughs> but uh, I, afterwards, I went away. I was mad. I was like, what does she think she's doing? You know, I'm, this is the way you got to get married. And this is, what, this is what we need to do. This is what we do in our church. And this is the way that you have to do it. I went and I, I complained to a, I talked to a, a minister friend of mine. I said, you know, this, this woman is saying she's not going to do this thing. And I'm not sure I'm going to marry her. And uh, you know what he said to me? He said, well, you know, Sam, he said, the Bible actually doesn't tell us as ministers to marry anyone. And I said, yeah, and she said this, and she said, but wait, what? <laughs> he said, the Bible doesn't tell us as pastors or ministers to marry people. And I was like, I, 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 you're right. And he said, not only that, the Bible doesn't even tell us how to get married. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us how to do a wedding. And again, I said, you're right. And right there, I flipped from being a weak, the weak brother to be a strong brother. Do you know what I did? I went back to her. I didn't like it. I went back to her, and I said, okay, and I'll marry you. And I married them, okay? And that, from that time on, I, in that area, I had flipped from interaction within the body of Christ. And so... Some of you know, some of you who I've married here or who are, I'm about to marry here, you know that when you come to me, I'm, uh, I put a lot on you in the wedding ceremony. 
And I say, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to decide this, you're going to decide that. And, and some people are like, wait, wait a second, tell me what to do. I said, it's harder for me to do that. He goes, in this area now, uh, I'm in this place. So friends, the more you know the Bible, the better you are at this. The better you are at this. But I hope that these examples can help you see this is why I'm not laid back. The village church was not an emergent church, but you could see how people could mistake it for that, couldn't you? Why? Because any, part, any church that I'm a part of, any church that I'm a part of, we are going to be adamant about not taking issues of conscience and making them codes of conduct. We will not make matters of conscience codes of conduct. So how does Paul get here? How does Paul know this? How does he know to say this? Well, as I said, he is at the end of his church planning career. What we're getting in the book of Romans is him at leisure telling the Romans what is important that, that he's learned from planning churches for years and years. And even though he's never been there, he knows it's an issue there. He knows it was an issue in Corinth. It was an issue in the different churches he's planted. He knows you have Jews and Gentiles, Jews having a lot of scruples about things. Gentiles often probably on the, on the free side, on the strong side, they have to live together. And Paul is saying, you've got to think this way. You've got to think of the way I'm talking to you. But you say, okay, maybe he has experience. But how does he get this wisdom? How does Paul come to this place and say, this is the way you have to think about it? Where does he, how does he know that? Well, he tells us, he tells us in verses 7 through 9. Let me just read that to us one more time. He tells us, this is where I get it. This is how I know we have to live this way. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For, this, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Now, does that sound like something to you? It should, it should remind us of an earlier passage in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Let me remind us. Romans chapter 6 says, For the death Christ died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay? Sounds like what we just read, isn't it? But he's talking about Christ. Christ died, and in his death, he died to sin. And when he came to life, he lives to God. And then Romans 6 also says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. In other words, both parties are being brought into union with Christ, different, different parts of Christ's experience. And that's what Paul is saying. The weak brother is coming into union with Christ's death. In the voluntary depriving of oneself, in the seeking of righteousness, he's coming into Christ's death. As Romans 6 also says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And you know, we as Christians live to die to ourselves. We're in death because he died. 
And if, if you can look at the weak brother and you can see that, then you can see how precious his decision is. And so verse 18, you will be able to esteem him. You will not despise him because Christ made himself the weak brother and submitted to a lack of freedom for us. And so when you see an act in that in someone else, you see it as sacred. The strong brother is enjoying Christ's resurrection. The strong brother is being brought into union with Christ's resurrection when he was freed from all bonds and is knowing the joy and peace of the gospel. And so we as Christians live our life to the fullest in Christ. He has risen to give us life more abundantly. And so there's no longer anything to condemn us. I am free to enjoy life without sin, without restraints, because he rose. Because he rose, I'm already justified. I have no condemnation. And the apostle knew this is why. You have to think this way. Unless you think this way, you will have either a licentious church or a legalistic church. Ironworks Church, whether you are living or dying, you are brought into union with Christ and you are approved. Let's celebrate it at the table.